All right, ladies and gentlemen, people of UCLA Bruins and beyond, welcome back to UCLA Radio's Red Carpet to WrestleMania. This week on the show, we have a really amazing guest, one of my all-time favorite broadcasters, one of my all-time favorite personalities in the world of professional wrestling and sports broadcasting. You may know him as Jonathan Coachman from ESPN or NBC, but most people, most wrestling fans know him as the coach. Thank you so much for joining us here today, and welcome on board, Coach. How are you doing? Anish, if you're going to have a road to WrestleMania, then it only seems appropriate that you bring the coach on to kind of help you down uh, the road in that journey. So I'm excited to be here. I love UCLA. I love what you guys are doing at your incredible uh, radio station there on campus. So uh, let's get to it, man. I got a lot to talk about today. Yeah. So the first thing I wanted to ask you about is obviously you've been in this business for a really, really long time. And before we get into WWE itself, one of the reasons I think I've always looked up to you a lot is because you started really young in college and uh, from what I've heard, even in high school broadcasting before that. So I wanted to ask you, what was the first time you really decided or realized, you know what, I think I want to go into this industry of sports broadcasting? Uh, It was way before high school or college. I knew when I was really a young kid, like seven or eight years old, uh, because I grew up in several small towns in Kansas, and there weren't a lot of professional athletes from where I came from. There weren't a lot of uh, guys that really went anywhere. And so my dad told me early on, I said, uh, you know, I want to be a pro athlete. I want to be a pro basketball player because I played all the sports. And I played college basketball as well. But uh, my dad was like, listen, there's a very, very small uh, number of people that play professional sports. So what else would you like to do? And I said, well, you know, I, I've always been a talker. And I said, well, maybe I could talk about it for a living. Because the only thing I've truly loved in my life, other than my family and a couple of dogs, is, is sports. Uh, and, then, and then I've always been a wrestling fan, too. So uh, this is something I've always wanted to do. I've never had a plan B. Uh, I've been lucky enough to have... Uh, a couple of really cool jobs in my career. And I, I, I'm, I'm excited about the next 25 years too, but um, I've known for a really, really long time and I've never, and I think that's what's made it so hard during this pandemic is I had a couple of people say, well, have you thought about doing something else? Cause I live in an area I was traveling all the time and right. they said, would you think about doing something else? And I said, this is what I do. And I've done it at a really high level for a really long time. And I started, like you said, I was 21, you know, and I was on national TV when I was 22, 23. So I didn't have a long runway to get to the level that I wanted to be at. Um, but I will never do anything else. I feel like this was my calling. Uh, it's changed over the years with what we're doing, how we're doing it. But this is what I do. And I'll, it will never change. You're speaking to my heart there because, yeah, apart from my family, sports is the only other real thing I've ever loved as well. So. We're definitely of a like mind in that scenario. Um, speaking on wrestling specifically, what territories did you watch growing up, or was it WWF? What was it like in Kansas, and what got you into the sport itself? <laughs> well, when I grew up, we had books because back then I didn't have cable TV till I was ten years old, eleven years old, something like that. Cable TV didn't even exist until, I mean, truly till like the late '80s, and you know, I'm in my mid '40s now, so we didn't have territories. We had books. And then as TV grew, you would have Saturday mornings. Then you'd have Saturday night's main event uh, with Hulk Hogan as the Golden Goose back in the day. So all I knew was Madison Square Garden, the big events, and the books that I read made these matches seem so much bigger than they really were. Uh, But I really grew up as a fan taking naps on Saturday afternoons so I could stay up on Saturday nights to watch uh, Hulk Hogan and the Iron Sheik and 
Jimmy Superfly Snooker and Rowdy Roddy Piper and all of those guys. And, and that was kind of my first uh, uh, touching of the wrestling business. Was Hogan your favorite growing up? Oh, yeah. I mean, there was only a couple of, of shirts that I ever owned. And I had the Hulkamania shirt. And I'll never forget that I got like an oil stain on it. Because I, where I grew up, you had to fix your own cars. You had to fix your own bicycles. So I'll, I'll never forget that I spent my hard-earned money on the Hulkamania shirt. Didn't have the guns at the time to, to wear it properly. Uh, but I remember getting that stain on it. And I still wore it anyway because I love that shirt so much. And, and who would have ever thought that 20 years down the road, I would have my own action figure, that I would have my own uh, uh, entrance music, uh, just like uh, the Hulkster did back in the day. But that's one of the things I'm most proud of. Uh, and I no longer have that shirt. I don't know where it is, but I do remember it was one of my favorite things of all time. I still have all my stained old, you know, little John Cena shirts as well. So I, I, I know where you're coming from <laughs> So in college, you did, obviously you played there and then you did a lot of sports broadcasting. What was it that took you down the road of immediately, almost immediately getting a job at WWE as opposed to, you know, broadcasting in a smaller station or working in the NBA or college conferences or something like that? What brought you immediately to professional wrestling? I've I've been very, very lucky. And whenever I speak to to college kids or high school kids, I I tell them that uh, talent is probably the most important thing, clearly. Uh, But to me, the second most important thing in my career has been luck and putting myself in a situation uh, where things can happen. And what I mean by that is I was in Kansas City. I thought that I was going to be there my entire career. That was my dream because I never thought growing up where I grew up that I'd be good enough to make it to ESPN. So I was like, if I can get to Kansas City, which is like market 30, they have an NFL team. They have a baseball team. That could be great. And I got there when I was 22 years old. And because of a tragedy, Owen Hart, which a lot of people may or may not remember, uh, he was up on top of the scoreboard. He fell tragically and, and died in the ring. I was in the building, and I had done a series of stories for my local station, and I'd only been at my station for about a month. So the WWF at the time, now WWE, they gave me tickets. I was in the seventh row. I, okay. I saw I it, and because of that, they brought Shawn Michaels three months later because I was very fair to them in my reporting of the incident because mm-hmm. there, there was no winners. We had somebody right. who passed away. We had a family upset here. We had a, camp, a company defending themselves over here. And I was kind of cut in the middle because I was the only reporter that was in the building. So when they brought Shawn Michaels three months later, because the very first SmackDown was already booked in Kansas City. And that's how it all happened. I met the vice president that came with Shawn Michaels. He liked me. He knew that I, he could tell that I knew what I was talking about. And that's how I got the offer to come and try out. That happened a week later and everything happened very, very fast. But I put myself in a situation. I showed my knowledge. I showed what I knew having no desire or inclination that this guy would call me a week later and say, Hey, would you like to come work for us? But you got to put yourself in a situation because you just never know in any situation. Of course. And when you started with WWE, so my first uh, memory of you when looking back is your immediate first appearance on WWE was your interview with The Rock. I just wanted to ask, just to clarify, did you have any other appearances before that or was that your first time on national television? I was not allowed to be on TV before that night. And the reason being is the deal we made with my station in Kansas City because it happened in August of 99. So I was the Chiefs guy. I was the guy that traveled with the team and did the Sunday reporting. They didn't have time to replace me at that point. 
So the deal was I could go to WWE shows on Mondays and Tuesdays and train and learn. And then when I was done with the Chiefs season, then I could go full time to WWE and be on TV. So the NFL season had just ended the week before that. So that was the first night that I was ever allowed to be on WWE television and to be with The Rock. And it was The Rock's idea, actually. Um, if anybody ever watches the, the, the interview, and it's been all over YouTube in many, many years, he said my name about six or seven times or eight times, and he didn't have to do that. And that's how you get somebody's name over is when you mess with the crowd, they don't realize that you're messing with them, but you're getting something stuck up in here. And he said, what are you the coach of? Are you the coach of this? Or are you the coach of that? So when I walked out of the building that night, all the fans were standing in the back wanting autographs and things. They started saying, coach, 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 coach. And it was a little bit overwhelming. And The Rock didn't have to do that. And that's just kind of how he is. And he also understands that if he gets somebody over, then that's going to get him over. And that's always been how he's worked. And if you look, if you look at what he does today, everybody he partners with, he puts them over and then they put him over. It's a simple process. It's a simple formula. And if you stick to it, you can do a lot of great things. Now, in that first interview, The Rock immediately asks what your name is. And you say famously, they call me the coach. And The Rock goes on that whole tirade, as you just said. Was that always the plan for you to come in there with a character as the coach? Or was that just a nickname that orga organically grew into the character you became? Well, I've been the coach since I was three years old. I mean, it's been my nickname forever. I've never had a first name other than my mother and my, and my brothers and sisters. Certainly my sisters don't call me the coach, but um, that's always been my nickname, always. And to be able to use it professionally, I didn't, certainly when you're in local news, they don't like anything that's outside of the box, which I think that's changed now. So for somebody like you, that's just coming into the business, uh, you don't have to be so buttoned up. Uh, you don't have to be as conservative as we did 20 years ago. Uh, but I pushed because I was in Wichita for a very, very, very short period of time. And then Kansas City. When I got to Wichita, I got my first job. I told our main anchor, I said, when you toss to me, I want you to say, all right, let's go out to the stadium. And the coach is there. I said, if we just do that a couple of times, people are going to get used to it. And that's what I tell kids all the time when it comes to branding, when it comes to your brand or whatever brand you're talking about. If you just train people to get used to hearing something or seeing something, they will get used to it. It's why I've, I've never understood when executives won't try something because if it works, then you've trained the audience. If it doesn't work, they, they move so fast that they'll move on and they'll forget the idea that didn't work. But if you just don't try something, then you're never going to know. So for me to try to use my nickname when I first got into local TV, was it a risk? Not for me, it wasn't because I knew I wanted to stick out and saying Jonathan, that's a boring name. It's a three-syllable name. It's hard to set on the air over and over and over and over. But the coach, the coach just rolls right off the tongue. Mm -hmm. So for me, I've, I've worked my entire career to be called the coach on the air. And there have been times, whether it's locally, ESPN, whatever the case might be, that some executives that just don't like entertainment, they didn't want me to use it. And actually, one time at ESPN, they sent a memo out that said, no more nicknames. And put some some just BS names at the top, like can't call Chris Fowler CF anymore. I mean, nobody calls Chris Fowler CF. Nobody. Uh, but they just didn't want to look like they were singling me out. Uh, but I tell people all the time, if you really believe in something and you really want to brand something and it matters to you, then fight for it. Don't die on the ledge over it, but fight for it. 
and I have, and it didn't always work out in my favor, but sitting here today, I'm the coach from wrestling, but also now from the world of golf, and we worked really hard to get there. Yeah, that's an awesome story because it speaks to a lot about what makes wrestling, I think, stand out from other industries. And I think what made you stand out from a lot of broadcasters was particularly your relationship with The Rock. So yeah. a couple of um, moments that people might think of as you singing Copacabana or, you know, The Rock asking what you're doing in that field with the cows. What was um, your a, a favorite moment working with The Rock? And what was your reason that you liked to work with The Rock so much? Um, great question or questions. My favorite moment all time with The Rock came, I think it was 2006, 2005. I don't remember the exact year, but people can look it up on YouTube. Uh, he had already left, uh, had already made several movies. And I was in a, a storyline with Eugene, who, for people who remember, his character was kind of, he was a wrestling savant, kind of like the character Rain Man, uh, where he knew a lot of wrestling topics. And, and all he wanted to do was make friends. That was it. And he was Eric Bischoff's nephew. And Eric, I was Eric Bischoff's like lackey. I was, I was, I would do his dirty work. So he wanted me to get rid of Eugene because he didn't want to disappoint his sister. All oh, this is a storyline, right? And so I spent months and months and months trying to get rid of Eugene, and he kept getting over on me. And he would make friends with all the big stars: Triple H, Undertaker, Stone Cold Steve Austin, all of these guys. But he had never made friends with The Rock. So we were going to be in San Diego one time, and I'll never forget the rock called the office and said, Hey, listen, I'm in LA. I'm promoting some movie. I would love to come down and do something with uh, Eugene and the coach. So they called me. He said, would you want to do it? I'm like, are you kidding me? I'll do whatever he wants to do. If he wants me to streak naked down to the <laughs> ring, I'm going to do that. Cause at the time he was really starting to take off and he was uh, getting to become the biggest star in the world. So it was supposed to be a 12 minute segment. We snuck the rock in. Nobody knew he was there and started off with Todd Grisham, my best friend in the world. Ask a question. My music hits. Here comes your Eugene comes down. My music hits. I come down, berate Eugene. Everybody's calling. They're chanting a hole, a hole, a hole. And, and then all of a sudden, as soon as Eugene got ready to leave, here comes the rock. And it was really one of the few times, if ever, that I lost character in the ring, but the camera wasn't on me. At that time, thank God. My hair, I had goosebumps. It was amazing. 15,000 people going absolutely bananas, losing their mind. That 12-minute segment turned out to be 23 minutes. And the people were into it. They were excited. It was awesome. Uh, the ratings were through the roof. Um, and that was my – because I could feel my relationship evolving and how it had gone from me being just the idiot that would hold the microphone for him six years prior to a guy that could stand in the ring and give him an insult and make him come back at me. That was a big deal in the sport of wrestling to put me on that level. And I'll never forget him for doing that. Um, and then also uh, when I sang Copacabana, many people didn't know that I was really a Barry Manilow fan. I really like his music. And so we got a call from his road manager or tour manager, and he was coming to Radio City Music Hall in New York City. That Christmas was just a couple of months after that interview took place. He actually left me two tickets at Will Call. That's and awesome. I, I went to the concert, and I'll never forget Regis Philbin was sitting right in front of me. 
Uh, it was sold out. It was obviously at Christmas time, uh, which there's nothing like Christmas in New York. And so that wouldn't have happened if not for the rock and, and, and the Copacabana. So uh, I, I have so many great memories and, and, and things I was able to do with the rock and, and a close second is probably my interview with him before he faced Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania 18 in Toronto too. That was, that was very memorable too. Yeah. Speaking of WrestleMania, what's been your favorite WrestleMania moment? Because you had the chance not only to be a backstage interviewer, but you were, I believe at some point, a general manager going into WrestleMania. You've been a broadcaster at WrestleMania. Yeah. What's your favorite WrestleMania moment? You know, not as a fan in the business. When, when you are in it, and you're constantly going 52 weeks a year, you don't have a chance to stop and look back and say, man, I did all that. And I, I recently just did that because people will send me clips all the time. And I'd forgotten that I had been those different roles at, at WrestleMania. So uh, that's pretty awesome. I've been to, I think there's been 36. I've been to 20 of the 36 WrestleManias, which is pretty cool. Uh, but for me, it's, it's easy. Uh, it's that, it's that interview with, with rock. Uh, nobody ever thought that, the face of the first generation, which was the eighties, whatever face, uh, one of the faces of the two thousands, the rock or stone cold or undertaker or whatever it was. And to have the rock and those just two mega powers and to be able to see it up close and to see how they put it together, to see how it changed when they got into the ring, uh, because the crowd uh, was not cheering the way they thought the crowd was going to cheer to have the rock, have the brilliance to be able to change the match that they've been working on for a week or two weeks was brilliant and showed uh, his talent at the highest level in front of the most people, 80,000 people, millions more watching on pay-per-view at home. And to have that four minutes before that match with just me and the rock and saying our prayers and eating our vitamins and, and all that kind of stuff, that was really, really cool. And that's something that nobody can take away from me. That's something that lives. It will live forever. And I'm, I'm grateful to have, have those moments and to be able to be a part of WrestleMania history in a small way. Yeah. I mean, that's a great answer right there. Other things that come to mind is your other interview with the rock the next year when he was going to face stone cold. Cause your interviews with him were usually so comedic and that one, he went completely deadly serious to really highlight the, 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 the gravity of the situation. So going on from that, I wanted to ask you what, what was the transition like going from backstage interviewer to announcer to, you know, fully fledged, on-air personality, a character, a wrestler in yeah. the ring. Uh, it was the hardest, like? hardest thing I've ever done. People don't understand how hard it is to, to train to physically be a professional wrestler. Uh, I say all the time, I think Kurt Angle is the greatest in-ring performer ever because of his background and what he was able to do. You're completely changing what your mind tells you to do. Taking a body slam or a suplex or a clothesline, whatever it is, uh, that's not normal. And your body and how it reacts is not normal. So I was training in the ring while I was traveling on the road. And I was already in the shows. And I was already working back in the studio doing six to seven studio shows a week. We were working our asses off. And I'll never forget, I was in the gym. And Vince McMahon walked up to me as he was working out with his trainer. And he said, hey, we're, we have an idea. You're 6'3". You know, you walk around at 240 pounds would you want to become a character? And if you do, you've got to physically train so that you can take the bumps because you're going to have to get in the ring. And at some point you're going to have to learn how to get beat up because I was so good at making people hate me that if you don't give them a payoff and allow them to see you get beat up so they can cheer, then you're not doing the business, a, the service that, and, and 
respecting it the way that it needs to be respected. So uh, I was in there four or five days a week training in the afternoon, empty arenas. Uh, it wasn't fun. It wasn't glamorous. But being on the show and with the bright lights and on Monday nights and, and Thursday nights, that was awesome. So it was really, really, really hard, though, and I'll never forget that. As an in-ring competitor, what has been your favorite match? I mean, you've had moments uh, against John Cena, Stone Cold, uh, the, the Rock himself, people like Hornswoggle. What was your favorite match? <laughs> um, I, I think the fact that I was able to get in two Royal Rumbles was pretty cool. And one of the Royal Rumbles I actually lasted 37 minutes, uh, which, you know, there was only five guys left when I got eliminated. And I was bragging about that for weeks. Um, and that irritated a lot of the guys backstage. There's a, there's a hierarchy. There's a, uh, you know, there's a respect factor. Uh, when I was a tag team champion for a day, I wore the belt around all backstage. That pissed everybody off too. Um, so probably those two, those two things. Uh, but I did have a, a really, I thought it was a pretty good match. My first pay-per-view match was with Tajiri. And he, he always claimed he could understand English, but he was, he was in the United States for 12 years. So we never believed him, but we played along to this day. He still acts like he doesn't understand English, uh, but uh, he was a good dude. Uh, he gave me a lot of stuff. He allowed me to shine. He allowed me to look good. So uh, for that, I'll forever be, be grateful to, to Jerry. But uh, I think the Royal Rumble matches are my favorite. Yeah, I mean, the Royal Rumble match as a concept is my favorite of all time as well. So I'm sure if that happened to be, I'd be bragging about it for weeks as well. So I, I don't blame you. Um, so now, speaking of other pay-per-views, you know, Shawn Michaels is Mr. WrestleMania. you got Randy Orton is the, the king of Survivor Series. But one thing I've always thought about you is I think one of the most underrated pay-per-views was Taboo Tuesday. And I think if anyone is Mr. Taboo Tuesday, that would be you. There are only two yeah. of these pay-per-views, 2004 and 2005. The first pay-per-view, you were the host. So let's start with that. What was it like being the host of your very own pay-per-view and what seemed like a very hard job as a broadcaster, essentially leading the whole night? Well, I, I mean, it's kind of what you, you live for when you're in the business. The, the, the thing that you dread the most is not being used. So when they came to me and my, my, my role was getting bigger and bigger and bigger, it was exciting, but it was also a little nerve wracking because at the end of the day, whether uh, the talent wants to say it or not, you're always trying to impress Vince. And if Vince isn't happy, then nobody's happy. It honestly does not matter what anybody else says. If he's not happy, then nobody's happy. And a lot of what I did was with him. A lot of my uh, shots backstage were with Vince. And so when you're doing a, a shoot with Vince, that takes it up to an even, even higher level. So uh, I actually like the fact that I could be in charge of Taboo Tuesday and I could be a part of the pre-show and I could be a part of this because it kept me away from Vince and I could just kind of do my own thing and I could create my own character. And, and I had a lot of fun with uh, how I positioned uh, the coach character uh, and how I would change from when, whenever I was on commentary to being a GM or being the character that was getting ready to have a match. All those things are different and you have to mentally understand where you're at in the show, what you're doing in the show, what you're talking about in the show. Uh, because then that will uh, adjust how you do your character. So you've always got to be thinking about that uh, nonstop. And on that specific show, was there ever a chance that if the crowd picked you to face Chris Jericho, you would have had to get down to the ring and have a match? Yes, absolutely. I mean, all those 
all of those decisions were on the up and up. I mean, I don't even know what you're saying. I mean, clearly, if the vote would have gone my way, I would have had to have a match with Chris Jericho. Yes. Yes. Wow. All right. And then next year at Tabu Tuesday, you got to be in the ring with the world heavyweight champion at the time, Batista. So that was a pretty crazy uh, escalation from being the host to having a match against the world heavyweight champion. What was your plan for that match? And did you ever really have any doubt that it was going to be a match and not a verbal debate or an arm wrestling match? Well, I don't remember a lot about that particular time period. I believe that I was originally supposed to fight Stone Cold Steve Austin. And then not sure what happened, but uh, that match didn't happen. And then all of a sudden they called me and they said, hey, change of plans. You're going to be taking on Batista. Well, I then quickly knew, because I I still believe to this day that I take the best Stone Cold stunner of anybody that's ever taken it. I don't care about The Rock. I don't care about Randy Orton. I don't care about anybody. I take the best stunner. So I was like, heck, I could take a few punches and a stunner. But then when you face Batista, that all goes out the window. Because now all of a sudden, you know a spine buster is coming. A running power slam is coming. All of these different things, they're coming. And there's nothing you can do about it. So I had to prepare myself for 320 pounds, 2% body fat. And he really only knew one way. And that was (laughs) stiff and hard and full speed. And I think that's why I'm so proud of, of how tough and I don't say that in like an egotistical way, but you really don't understand how tough you are. You know, the old saying until you get smacked in the face. Well, we got smacked in the face every single day. And I was proud of the fact of being able to have the creative team book me in these situations or matches without having a second thought, knowing I could walk in and do the physical part, make it look believable, but also take it because it hurts. It's not easy. And when people say that it's fake, oh, my God, the hairs on the back of my neck just stand up. It might be choreographed, the storylines, but the physicality is not fake at all. And that always drives any of us nuts. So I'm really proud of that fact that I was able to to do that and do it for, for as long as I did. Yeah, and with the World Heavyweight Champion right there, who's someone who's going to hit yeah. you as hard as you possibly can. That's a pretty awesome thing to hear. Before I you know, want to get a little inside and talk about broadcasting itself, one last sure. match I wanted to ask you about. You know, you're up there with you know, some of the most popular broadcasters of all time, and one of the greatest, my hero growing up, was Jim Ross. And you had a match with Jim Ross for yeah. what might have been the craziest match you've ever seen because it was two great broadcasters going at it in a bullwhip match. What yeah. was that like? It hurt. It hurt. <laughs> you know, I, I, I've had people ask me a million times, was, was the strap real? Was the whip real? Hell yes, it was real. You, you can't have something where fans are 10 feet away and fake it. You know, whenever Mick Foley would fall on the thumbtacks and they were into his back, those are real thumbtacks. Understand, anybody that's watching this interview, that was real. Now, in real life, would Jim Ross ever beat me in anything? No. <laughs> Absolutely not. I mean, I'm an athlete. You know, I'm 6'3". I'm in really good shape. Uh, I'm pretty tough for what I do. Uh, But he's the greatest of all time. He's the GOAT. When it comes to um, broadcasting, and even he would tell you, he did not want to do that match. He didn't want to do it. 
because the one thing you don't want to do is embarrass yourself, uh, but also you want to make it look believable. And so I, I had to sacrifice because I had to make it look like Jim Ross could actually beat me up. Uh, and I think we did that. Uh, Jim has always been embarrassed. JR has always been embarrassed about the match. I haven't been embarrassed. Uh, I've done a lot of things that are much more embarrassing than that. Uh, but uh, it hurt. We had Welsh for a couple of days, and then uh, you move on and, and drive down to the next town. Okay, cool. So as a broadcaster itself, you had the chance to be commentator on Raw and SmackDown and different pay-per-views, of course. What goes into being a commentator for the WWE and what sort of preparation did you have to do? And what does it take essentially to do it week in, week out with some, with things changing so quickly? Uh, whether you're just coming out of school or whether you're an established broadcaster that's making a pivot uh, in your career, uh, I think now, and I give myself a lot of credit for this, that uh, now if you want to get into pro wrestling, it's, it's not frowned upon anymore. Uh, nobody can ever say part of what I feel like my calling is is I fought and fought and fought when I got to ESPN to do WWE content on SportsCenter, but also to fight for myself because of my background. A lot of executives didn't feel like I had earned my spot doing SportsCenter. Now all that's out the window. It doesn't matter anymore. You can do wrestling in, in, in ESPN. You can do wrestling in CBS. You can do wrestling in, in whatever it is. And so now that you can get in that way, now you've got to say, am I prepared? Am I prepared? Because you, there are no market 60s in pro wrestling. You either go nationwide or not. There is no territories anymore. There is no, you're only on in Massachusetts. You're on national TV and you've got to be prepared for that. And you can really tell people that are seasoned, even at a young age that are prepared and people that aren't. And that's what you truly have to, to say to yourself. Am I prepared? Uh, do I get too excited when the red light comes on? Because you're going to be thrown into every single situation, whether it's backstage interviewing, whether it's hosting a pre-show with a panel that you've got to navigate three or four other really big uh, wrestling personalities, or if you're hosting a show where you're doing it on cameras. Those are really the three, oh, I guess, and, and calling play-by-play -play at ringside. So those are the four different ways that you have to prepare yourself. That if you're going into local sports in Wichita, Kansas, those aren't necessarily the uh, the things that you have to prepare for. They're different. Uh, so you really got to do your research, find people that have done it like me or Michael Cole or, or whoever, um, and have them be honest with you. The one thing I always am is honest about how difficult the business is, how hard it is to get in, uh, especially if you want to get into the niche of wrestling, because that's even far fewer uh, gigs to get. It's not impossible. It's just really, really hard. And for people to say that it's not hard, they're doing somebody who wants to get into the wrestling business a disservice. And it's not making them, it's not deterring them from trying. It's understanding the amount of effort and the amount of no's that you might hear before you hear a yes. And you can't stop. If it's truly what you want to do and it's the sport that you want to do, then you've got to keep going. You may have to do other things in the meantime to earn a living and increase your career. But if wrestling is truly something you want to do, work on those skill sets, cut promos into the mirror, which I still do to this day. Same here. <laughs> to this day. It's the only way you can practice. And people say, oh, I feel stupid. Really? Do you feel stupid when the paycheck comes in or when the paycheck doesn't come in? Because I don't feel stupid. So uh, those are the things. And it's entertainment. You're not doing a live shot 
for the double A baseball team in, in Raleigh, North Carolina. You've got to learn how to sell, sell the brand, sell the brand within the brand, all those types of things you've got to learn how to do. So do your homework and, and, and put in the effort. If you don't, people will pass you by. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much. I mean, that's advice that anyone listening to this that's interested in this business or just wants to know more about it can, you know, take to heart. And I wanted to ask you specifically, a lot of commentators have always talked about uh, the idea of, you know, someone being in your ear. Obviously, a lot of people talk about Vince McMahon being in your ear. What was your experience like working with the big man in, in Vince? If you did not repeat what he told you to say within, I, I got to the point where I could repeat it within a second, maybe, maybe two. I got really good at it. So if you didn't say what he told you to say, then he was screaming. So it was either say it, even if I had to interrupt the King or JR or Michael Cole or whoever it was, I was going to say it because I wasn't about to walk back through the curtain and have him screaming at me because I didn't say, now it could have been the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And a lot of times people on Twitter or social media were criticized me for saying something. I'm like, wait a second, that wasn't even my line, but you can't say that. You can't come back at somebody on Twitter and say, oh, well, Vince told me to say that. It's kind of like the Wizard of Oz. Are you going to blame the, the wizard? Are you going to blame Oz, I guess? Would it be Oz? It would be Oz. It'd be the wizard. It would be the wizard, yeah. yeah. You're not going to blame the wizard because the wizard doesn't exist. And in our world, Vince doesn't exist, even though he's there uh, for pretty much every single show. I can't remember maybe more than five shows that I did that Vince wasn't in our ears. Probably less than five. And which is incredible because if I was a billionaire and I was in my 60s, you'd probably never hear from me again. I'd, I'd buy an island and I would just go and, and enjoy the, the last 25 years of my life. That's not how he's wired. He likes he, he likes to reap what he has built. And I get that. Uh, but that also can mean that he is very overwhelming and overpassionate sometimes about commentary and storytelling and telling the right story to make sure the right guy or gal uh, is being pushed and positioning them the right way. Uh, because when you tell a story, just like if somebody's reading a book, you want them to feel a certain way about a certain character. And that's important. That helps their character. And that's why commentary is so important to this day. So it was hard. It was hard. Uh, but I got used to it over the years. And on that, on storytelling, you as a broadcaster, if you had to point to, to people who didn't know you and say, that's the match that signifies what I did as the coach, as a commentator, which match would that be that you call? Boy, you know, I don't think anybody has ever asked me that before. Because honestly, what people remember the most is my last three or four years, I was the character and not a commentator. Mm -hmm. And so they're all, oh, you're the guy that did this or John Cena put you through a table or whatever. So and I, I guess I don't even look at myself as, uh, you know, one of the, the leading broadcasters because I did so many different things. So uh, I guess if I guess the last WrestleMania that I did, I got to see from ringside in Orlando. It was the, the Ric Flair, his retirement match. And I love Rick and still do so much. And I was hoping that that would be really his retirement match. We've seen over the last 12 years uh, that in the wrestling business, you never retire. 
you just walk away from time to time. Uh, but to see that up close, to see Shawn Michaels say, I'm sorry, to also see Floyd Mayweather, who did an I quit match with, I think it was I quit, with the big show, and to see how seriously Floyd Mayweather took it, and to see that behind closed doors, he's so different than what people see the persona of him uh, on social media or in real life. Um, I enjoyed that. So probably, probably that WrestleMania in 2008. And I also knew deep in my heart that that would be my last one, or I thought it would be my last one that I would ever work for the company and, and be at WrestleMania. So that, that one was pretty special. Awesome. Yeah, that, that's a great WrestleMania right there. And that Ric Flair retirement match, you know, stole the show that night. So I can definitely see where you're coming from. Um, yeah, let's go on to that. After WWE, you went on to become a really successful broadcaster for ESPN hosting SportsCenter. And right now you're the voice of golf on NBC Sports. So I want to ask, what took you from WWE to deciding, hey, I want to do mainstream sports or, you know, quote unquote, mainstream sports from now? Well, um, Really, truly, I was getting burned out. It was over nine years of traveling every single week. I only missed one Monday night in nine and a half years. And that was after I got married to go on my honeymoon. So when you travel 52 weeks a year, and when people hear that, they don't believe me or any of us. But it was truly, and it still is, 52 weeks a year. So I was truly burnt out. I also knew that if I didn't get out at that point, I was always going to have what, what I call the wrestling stain on me that uh, there's so many executives that don't look at the talent that you have to have to do pro wrestling, but instead look at something that they may not like that they may not watch. And innately human beings love to be negative about things they don't know or things they don't care to know about. And pro wrestling falls into that category for a lot of network executives. So, when I got the chance to go to ESPN and the lady who hired me, I worked with an MSG network the last two years I was at WWE. So I thought I was going to go to MSG. So when she left, I was crushed because I knew I did not want to sign another deal with the WWE. I knew I couldn't do three more years of that schedule. Plus I just got married. I just was having my daughter. So when I had that opportunity, I had to take it. And the timing worked out. WWE could not have been better. They took me off the air, put Mick Foley in my position. I had four months where I didn't have to travel. Uh, I got to be home for my daughter's birth. I got to move and then start at, at ESPN in August of 2008. So uh, it was an easy decision. Plus, that was always my dream. Wrestling was never my dream. ESPN was always my dream. And then over time, that dream has changed too. Now my dreams are different. But I can always say I made it to ESPN. I made it for 10 years at ESPN. I got to do SportsCenter, which very few people can say they got to do that. So I'm incredibly proud of being the first person and really, to be honest, kind of the only person that's ever been the voice of Monday Night Raw and also has done SportsCenter. It's never been done. But it's laid the road now for like Todd Grisham. He did wrestling and ESPN. Charlie Caruso, she does currently wrestling and ESPN. So I feel like we kind of opened the door um, and all the battles that I had to have personally led to uh, other people now being able to do both. Uh, Pat McAfee is another example. Um, but before me, that never happened because uh, short-sighted executives wouldn't allow it to happen. 
luckily a lot of those executives are gone now and, and it, it's opened the door for for a lot of people to do a lot of things in both yeah awesome thank you so much for doing that as a broadcaster coming up in the business i mean Tell us about what you're doing now with NBC and PGA and World Long Drive Championships. And how do you go from a sport like wrestling to one like golf where, you know, my parents are big golf fans and I watch golf a lot, especially Tiger Woods growing up. So I, I know what it's about, but a lot of people don't really appreciate it. What is it like doing golf now? Well, I, I've always loved golf since I was in high school. Uh, I played golf uh, one senior of college. I wasn't very good, but you can play for free. Uh, but I always kind of had it in the back of my mind that um, I always feel like I'm really smart at looking ahead five years, 10 years. And I love this business and I love this business more than anything, uh, but this business doesn't always love you back. And I don't care who you are. It doesn't always love you back. So if you're not always looking and always evolving and always changing, you could somehow find yourself on the sidelines with no options. So I knew a few years ago that my love of golf, the lack of diversity in golf. And when you look at the golf channel, PGA tour, or the PGA of America, you look at all three of those, I consider them the three big organizations in golf, no diversity whatsoever. And I've addressed it with all three. Right now, Golf Channel and I, we're kind of taking a hiatus because they're moving their operation. I live in California, uh, but it doesn't mean that we won't reconvene at some point, but I do work directly with the PGA Tour. I'm one of the voices of PGA Tour Live. I'm one of the ambassadors with Steph Curry, Paul Millsap with the PGA of America uh, directly for uh, their PGA works program, which encourages diversity and inclusion in the business of golf. I felt like that was my calling. I felt like after being on the air for 20 years that yes, I can still do that, but I can affect young people, young professionals, young professionals that want to get in this business as a broadcaster, uh, as an influencer, whatever it is that I can help with that being a strong black male voice that this sport desperately needs so with that thought process that's why i left espn we were really in an incredible journey everything that i had lined up was coming together this year and then the pandemic happened so we've now had to pivot we've now had to evolve and change our thinking but it could in the long term uh work into our advantage to not have to travel as much to be able to be more effective working out of the house uh, but I feel like my calling for the last 25 years of my career, and I do believe I have 25 years left, and it's also a sport that you can do into your 70s, into your 80s, if I choose to. But mm -hmm. I damn sure know I couldn't host Sports Center into my right. 70s and into my 80s. So it was the right time to leave. It was the right time to move for my family. Uh, and it's taken a lot of hard work to get these golf organizations to understand they need somebody like me for a lot of different reasons. And now that we're getting there slowly, but surely uh, everything we're doing is, is for the right reasons to help people, to help the business, to help the sport of golf. Uh, and that, that is what our mission statement is. And, and we're doing, I've got a lot of good people around me too, uh, that we're partnering with. And I would tell young people too, you can't always do it by yourself. You know, I, I have a lot of great ideas. It doesn't mean I can bring them to life. So I've got a great producer who brings them to life for me. He gets in my head and brings out my ideas uh, and it's changed my career. And it's been a hard year for everybody, but I think in the long term, the changes we're making are going to be uh, for the better for sure. Awesome. And, you know, tell people where else they can find you. I know you have two podcasts going on. What are those? And, you know, tell us about uh, what you do with them and your social medias and stuff, just so everyone can find you everywhere. 
Yeah, so Twitter and Instagram are both at the Coach Rules. Um, we have Cash Out with the Coaches, which drops every Wednesday morning. We have interviews with uh, different golfers. Uh, we do uh, golf betting picks. And then really where my, my golf betting is serious is Follow the Action, uh, which is on Apple and Spotify. We also have a video version on YouTube. And, and I give out a lot of matchup bets there. Uh, we've been on fire lately. We also have two other professional gamblers on the show with us that do NFL. We do UFC. So those two podcasts take up a lot of our time. And I also do a daily show on Twitter and Periscope at uh, noon Eastern, uh, 9 a.m. Pacific. We're basically, we call it the fastest 15 minutes in your midday. And it's five topics, 15 minutes. And you can get on with your uh, uh, lunch hour in the East Coast, or if you're just getting started with your day uh, here on the West Coast, we kind of uh, try to get it started with a smile, uh, a positive take on different things, agree or disagree. We don't care. We just want you to watch. Uh, and those, those are three things. And I've got another show getting ready to start in December and then uh, a couple other things starting in January. So we're going to be everywhere. But the whole point, Anish, is to supply golf, sports, content, betting content in a positive space that people aren't going to feel like they're being made fun of or that they don't belong. And we want you with us at Coach Em Up LLC uh, to just enjoy the world as we know it, enjoy the sports world as we know it, and enjoy the golf world uh, as we know it in 2020. Awesome. Yeah, we'll link all of those and wherever we post this Apple podcast, iTunes, Spotify, YouTube and all that. And we'll make sure to tag you. And uh, I have a couple of questions I want to ask you off there. But my last question for you on the air is one of the things I really want to ask you about, because we're a radio station. We curate music and that's one of the most important things we do aside from sports here. You have, I think, one of the most underrated entrance themes in WWE in that hard hitting song. Was that your idea? Who came up with that song? And do you like having that song associated with you? Because it's a, it's, it's a bop. I'll, I'll say that. Yeah. It's so, so I've had two. The first one was okay. They kind of just kind of threw it together uh, when I became a character because every character has to have their own theme song. So that was cool. But then when they actually really made one just for me and the, the yin yang twins were involved in it, um, it was super cool. And to be honest, it was a little emotional because you never dream about having your own interest theme or your own action figure or anything like that when you're, an announcer or a commentator uh but that all happened for me and i'll never forget they took me out into the to the arena and they put the the big screen up there and all the wrestlers were out there and they played it to see how it would sound in the arena and uh, i was just super catchy and, and people have loved it for so many years uh, i still get a check for about 14 dollars every three months because it was on one of the cds that was uh that's still for sale uh mm -hmm. so i find that ridiculous but uh, I go to Taco Bell every three months, and 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 I think that uh, that interesting. But uh, anybody that tells you that it's not cool or that uh, they don't like having their own theme, they'd be lying to you. It's 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 something that nobody can take away. And in this business, those are things that you hang on to because so many things come and go so quickly. But that's something that nobody can take away. So I love it. Yeah, thank you so much, Coach, for joining us. What an awesome interview and. In the words of your entrance theme, hard-hitting, back-breaking, everybody <laughs> out there seat for the coach. Thanks so much. And, Anise, it was great talking to you for a while, buddy. And good of luck to you and everybody there at UCLA. And uh, Keep working hard. Uh, and the sky's the limit. The sky's the limit. I wish you all the best. Thanks for having me.